I think what the rich know, and therefore it's something that they see, is that they have more options to invest their money, and more money is being thrown at them and given to them for them to use because they are such good customers in the eyes of the banks that they get faster accelerants to reaching wealth. So for example, if you're a wealthy individual and you make a million a year, you pay a certain amount of income tax and you follow the same schedule as someone else. You, you follow the same schedule as someone else. But then the thing that sets you apart is investing. So rich people invest in a way where they actually get very little tax in terms of capital gains because in Malaysia, there's no capital gains. So poor people really need to think about getting into a mode where they can actually invest. Whereas rich people actually get a lot of options to invest and actually see more options to invest and actually get given more money to invest. And because of that, they race ahead and it's very hard to catch up. But it's not too late to start. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 42 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Wong Wai Ken, the country manager of Stashaway, an intelligent wealth management platform that currently manages over $1 billion worth of people's life savings and is also the oldest robo-advisory in Malaysia. In this episode, Wagen shares how he first got into the world of investments, starting from his childhood, when his mother would encourage him to use his unfile to invest in unit trusts, to how he went from Kazana to Afingwang and what convinced him to join a then two-year-old startup called Stashaway. We dive deep into what it's like being the country manager, Sashaway's value proposition, how it came up with his risk index, why he doesn't invest in crypto, what he thinks the rich know that the poor don't, and so many other things. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I think like any other KL, Malaysian, Chinese person, fairly middle class, I remember it as being very busy. My parents would get us involved in a lot of things. A go tuition, piano class or sports or drama class, even computer class and English at Richmond. So every single day was packed. When I look back, there were things that I really, really enjoyed doing. So would you say that your mom was quite a prominent figure in your life? Because she also was very much teaching you investments when you were young. She was like taking your umpao and telling you to start investing mm. at a young age. So obviously, I think both my mom and dad had a lot to impart, just in different ways, in their own style. My mom is definitely more vocal. My mom is more driven and she's more extroverted as well. She was the first from her family to get a scholarship to go and study education, to be a teacher. She was an English teacher at the time. She was all about education. So she kept saying around the dinner table, like how education is the silver bullet. It can free you from the poverty cycle. It can elevate you. You can get exposed. You can travel the world. Education is everything. So as kids, we just took it for granted that education was everything. She had a successful English teaching career. She thought like, there's no way I'm going to raise three kids with her aspirations of sending us overseas on a government salary. So she started selling unit trusts and unit trust agents. If you do well, you can actually earn a lot of money. And back then, unit trust was a very hot thing. So apart from the stock market, the only way to invest was unit trust. So this was the mid-90s. 
and not a lot of liquid investments were available. So that's what she did. She would visit a lot of high net worth clients and successful people. And every time she comes back to, to, to the house and she would have dinner with us, she would always tell us about all these successful people that she met and how they were successful, how they got to where they were. And then during Chinese New Year, sometimes we would visit them as well. And their houses were always like so lavish and they live such an amazing life in all these gated communities. So early in life, I already had that programming that you have to make it. We've set you up for success and you have to one day be like this in some way, shape or form. And success was 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 built into us because it was something that they invested a lot into us and kind of expected us to succeed. And at the same time, they actually balanced out the pressure quite a lot. So uh, they didn't push until the breaking point. They just exposed us a lot. And that's where I guess my dad was very, very helpful where he's extroverted, but he's only extroverted at work. So at home, he'll be very tired. He would work, he would be a managing director for a property de- development company, but he would come home, be very tired and then have dinner with us and then he would just go watch TV. And then he would make sure we, we exercise, always go to club and swim and play badminton or run around the club, give you good cardio. He balanced it out very well. But then I think the big thing is that my mom would say like during Chinese New Year, like give me Ang Pao and, and I will invest it for you. And then she would show me the balance. The balance more often than not would be, would be positive. So it's like, okay, I didn't think much of it, but I was just like, okay, it's safe. But I always knew that one day I would break the piggy bank and, and get at it. So I believe you broke the piggy bank for your wedding. So that was quite a long investment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very useful. And I really do believe that money should be spent on things that are useful to you and things that bring you great joy. So I don't really believe in hoarding. I'm not that tight with my money. So ultimately, when my wedding rolled around, it was very natural for me to say, yeah, I've invested for ages. My wife and I both chipped in. And it was completely self-funded. And that felt very good because we didn't have to ask parents for money or even worse, take a loan. You hear stories, put it on a credit card or whatnot. So we did okay. And a pro tip to, to those of you who are looking to get married, let your parents invite more of your friends. Their ang pao tend to be bigger. So <laughs> all my friends, all ang pao very slim. Ang pao all on diet. But my parents, all the uncles and aunties had very, very generous ang pao. So let your parents invite their friends. <laughs> And so when you were 16, you moved to Australia for your studies. So what was behind that move? Yeah, so again, the recurring theme of education is everything. Obviously, it's very difficult to fund a completely international uni program for three kids. And at that time, as I'm sure with a lot of Chinese Malaysian people, they just don't know what the future of Malaysia holds. So it's like, oh, let's send our kids overseas and quote unquote, give them options. I believe it was motivated purely by education, but at the back of their mind, they'll be like, okay, in case Malaysia goes down the tubes, at least they can live a good life in Australia. So like clockwork, when we were 16, they would send us overseas and they would actually prime us beforehand. So first, they, they told us maybe when we were in secondary school, like, okay, one day you're going to go. We didn't think of it because it's like many, many years away. And then one day we just went there on holiday. And then they said like, oh, one day you could stay here. Wouldn't that be nice? And then another year later, it's like, okay, you need to go to Australia to sit for a test so you can get into this school. Then it became very real after they say, oh, you've been accepted into these schools. Which one you want to go to? At 16, my sister already was there for a year and then I joined her and then two years later, my younger sister joined me. And three of us lived in a house, a condo in Chatswood in Sydney. Lovely neighborhood, a lot of Asian food, groceries around. And then that's where we learned how to be independent. You cook for yourself, you clean for yourself, you balance your school and your study. And at that point, being so straight already, you would never even think of having parties in your house because you are the one who has to clean it up later, right? So why have a party in your house? We 
we were more exposed. We understood that you can also live a good life, but work very hard at the same time. You don't need to work nine to five until you die and have nothing to show for it. Did you have a clear vision of what you wanted to do? Not at first, but when I was at school going into uni, you kind of have to know what you're going to study. So I knew that I wasn't going to do things like law, like you did, or maybe medicine, like Dr. Jason Leong. But in high school, I did this program called Young Achievers. I wish it upon everyone because it's where they get a bunch of high school kids and they make you set up and run a business. And I remember just loving the whole experience because it was like, wow, we get to conceptualize something. We get to raise money. We get to convince our friends to buy our wares. In that same vein, you get to go through difficulty, you get to drive towards targets. So I love that whole business arena. And I was like, where is this in Malaysia? Where is this? The whole glorification of sciences was like, to me, very, very wrong. So going over there and discovering like, it was like coming out of the closet, like, I love business. And like, <laughs> to which I'm sure a lot of Chinese people would have gone like, yeah, you're Chinese, of course you love business, right? But like back then, it was like, oh, you should do something science-related, like be an engineer or be a doctor. I just didn't really fit that mold. So I came out and said, I love business. <laughs> and from then on, it was just, let's do it. And I watched Wall Street and then false idols like Gordon Gecko, you know, that was so cool, right? Let's be a master of universe or whatever. So fanciful. And then when I went to uni, it was all about finance. It was about commerce and economics. And I loved it. Five years in University of New South Wales, not just studying, but also working at the same time in finance. I really, really loved that phase of life as well. Very, very immersed in what I called back then my passion, which is also a big buzzword back then. So you were never struck by that kind of go to university, let's drop out to do a startup dream? No, I, I, I think, although I did, my mom did make me read a book by Richard Branson called Losing My Virginity. And it was all about him dropping out of uni and being the founder of a whole bunch of businesses. And I remember telling my mom, like, yeah, if I just drop out of school, then I could like do this business thing. And then I could just laugh, right? And then I went to a doctor with her one day and then, young man, what do you want to do? And then I just said, I want to drop out of school and start a business. And then he also laughed, right? So it was like, Oh, okay, at least I have some jokes, but it's not realistic as a person that is so conditioned to going into a career. That wasn't something that I ever wanted to pursue. But I, I do think it is for some people. If you have role models, if you have the opportunity, dropping out and doing something is definitely possible. But don't do it because of the romantic notion of just being a Zuckerberg or whatever. It's more often than not, there are different ways. So no, at no point did I feel like I was gifted enough to drop out and do something. And you mentioned earlier that you were doing multiple jobs while you were at university. So you were at three different places, I think. The Research Premium China Funds Management, University of North yeah. Carolina, and also HSBC. So yeah. was this like an intentional, yeah. I need to supplement my life or was it just, I need the work experience? What was driving you to yeah. work throughout your university? Yeah, I enjoy working because in my high school days, I had some really fun old jobs. When I was studying, I was asking my friend, like, hey, you don't really seem like you study, right? Like, what, what do you do? And he just said, like, oh, I work in this cafe and I get like 15, 16 bucks an hour. And to me, that was like, wow, that's so much money. And then I said, like, yeah, if your cafe needs another pair of hands, let me know. So I did my stint plate washing. Not very good, but I did that for a while. It's not that romantic, trust me. But my next odd job was actually really, really cool because at that point, I had started to drink whiskey already. I loved single malt and I loved kind of trying new things. And then at uni... My friend said, oh, you look like I have an uncle that's starting a, a pure whiskey bottle shop in Australia, a really fancy part of Sydney called Double Bay. And if you want to join him, he's really keen to get floor staff. So I, I joined him and I had so much time. 
so much fun. I got like 21 bucks an hour just to sit there and learn about whiskey, listen to jazz and taste and talk to suppliers, talk to my bosses about whiskey. It was so fun, right? So I knew that I liked working, but I knew that whiskey was just a, a hobby. It would be a hobby that would land me in a lot of good places, actually. Whiskey has been good to me. But as a Chinese guy from Malaysia, you're not going to be like, yeah, I don't want to do finance anymore, right? So in uni, I knew I liked to work. I think the drive to work at uni was actually the first week I went to Accounting 101. And then I saw a room full of like three, 400 people. I was like, wow, they didn't know they were churning grads out like this. On an industrial scale, it was University of New South Wales in Sydney. So there were a lot of Chinese people from Hong Kong, people from Singapore, a lot of Malaysians. And obviously they're all Asian and they all look like me. I'm like... I have nothing above these guys. I met Chinese people, like proper Chinese people in school and their intellect is amazing. No need to talk about the Singaporeans, no need to talk about the honkies, they're all up there. So as an average academic guy, I went, okay, I need work experience to supplement what I do and to give me that depth because there's only so much books can tell you. So I pursued an accounting job, got it. I remember it was a cadetship which was meant for people to study part-time and work part-time. So it was great. And I remember the princely sum of 28,000 Aussie dollars a year. And I felt like I'm the richest man in the world, 28,000 a year. Imagine converting that to to ringgit. You would be so taxes and then you spend and then like you you don't really get that much at the end. But like when I was signing, I was so happy. Little did I know that accounting was so boring. And to all those who want to dream about being accountants, don't let me get in your way. It just wasn't my thing. I remember one day I was doing an audit and literally I was just ticking boxes. I was like looking at their receipts looking back at my spreadsheet, putting a tick, looking at their spreadsheet. And I did this for like days on end and I felt like a robot, right? But obviously as a cadet, as a lowly accountant, that's what you were meant to do to drive that discipline, to have that attention to detail, which I don't have. It was just like, man, this is really not for me. And the moment I tended was I went to night class. I saw this other guy in a suit because I had a suit as well. And I spoke to him and he said, he said, oh, I work for uh, a funds management company and we distribute funds that invest in China. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, what's it called? And he told me the name of the company and he said, like, you seem like a pretty decent guy. Why don't you show up for interviews? We're actually hiring analysts as well. So I went to the interview. I think I did okay. Oh, I remember it was a group interview and I remember the other candidates not being as vocal as me. So I just tried to talk so much in that interview. I tried to help them out because it was a group interview. And in the end, they told me I got it. And then I was so happy when I attended from my accounting job because I, I felt very happy knowing what I don't want to do. So then I spent time also working in funds management, which was terribly exciting because China was just hitting its stride, posting 10%, 10%, 10% a year, like work. I mean, they all cooked the books, but back then it was a very easy pitch. China's doing amazing. The stock market's just getting started. The rally is going on. We had this famous CIO called Chia Jinghai, the guy behind Value Partners, actually Malaysian, by the way, from Penang, whose fund we were distributing in China, in, in, in Malaysia. His China fund was being distributed by us in Australia. So it was a really good time leading up to 2008. And then 2008 came. And 2008 was scary for so many reasons. Market was tanking. We were worried about whether there would be banks the very next day or not. We would be worried if the stock market could even exist or not. And that was a very scary prospect. Being in finance, loving finance, having the passion. And to see all these institutions crumble was very scary. Like you feel that pit of your stomach, like you don't know what's going to happen. And I still remember that feeling because that informs me whenever we are in a crisis, that feeling is really there. So I learned so much, I saw so much, and 
when my friends in that same kind of accounting class three years later were asking, oh, where do I intern now? I could actually just go like, ah, you guys have no idea. I've already been working for two years and it's pretty ugly out there. So good luck. <laughs> I was, I guess, pretty full of myself, but it was true because they, they had no idea. And I was in the thick of it where China was also giving back a lot of its gains. So ultimately for my last year of uni, I said to myself, okay, I've been working for a while. I want to be a student for a while. Things were getting difficult at work. I had a very Chinaman boss. And being Chinaman boss, they treat you in very strange kinds of ways. So while I was learning a lot, I didn't really like the ethics of the company. Nothing that was wrong, but it was just how they treat employees. And I didn't like that ethic. So I left and I went back to full-time study and I said to myself, let's just have fun. And that's where the University of North Carolina came about. I did an exchange and I loved it. It was so fun. Actually being a student, being in America, they were like, oh my God, I love your accent. Because you had an Australian accent. I, I never felt like I was ever exotic, but when you go to America and of all places, North Carolina, which is very, very fun. It's just a campus town, small, small town. Everything is exotic, I guess. Through that experience, I also got to travel the States and also got to surround myself with very, very smart, very social people. And I loved it. And then I came back to Malaysia, did a stint with HSBC. And that's where I would meet my future boss from Martin Huang. And then I finished off my studies. And yeah, that was the whole uni wrapped up, but very, very rich career and professional experience along the way as well. So were you very clear that I would definitely come back to Malaysia after graduation? No, no. I think as a Malaysian who's made it overseas, you had all your talking points about why coming back to Malaysia was the wrong thing. And every time you would come back to Malaysia for your holidays, you'd be like, yeah, this is why I left. It's just a mindset. It's not because Malaysia was in deep trouble. All you need is one thing to change it, right? And in my case, it was a couple of things. I actually came back, worked for HSBC for my future boss, Joe, uh, Johan. And I was like, wow, this is a good life. If you work and you earn and you go out and you can experience like good life this is fun there's absolutely nothing wrong with Malaysia and then when I was looking for jobs Kazana came and they came to our uni and I quickly researched what Kazana was because I didn't know and but then obviously I show up <laughs> fully prepared and I, I really liked the idea of Kazana and then they were the first to also come back to me to say that you've been accepted so in that sense I didn't have to really search super hard for jobs in Sydney so I came back straight away and that's how I got started back home in KL. So what was the idea about Kazana that you liked so much and was working in the investment team everything that you thought you would? It was and it wasn't. So the, the thing about Kazana is that it plays a very important role in Malaysian corporate life and in the politics of Malaysia as well. So as a sovereign wealth fund, it is a steward of all the national assets that we have. So name any big GLC and it would probably have an ownership stake in it. There would be really, really great companies that it would own like Telecom and CIMB and things like that. But there would also be companies that would be burning through a lot of cash, things like Proton, Post Malaysia, and so Malaysian Airlines, companies that it's divested or thought about divesting at many, many points in time. But it never felt like we were not doing the right thing. So at that company, you always felt like the fate of the country and its assets are on the line. That's why this process was so important. That's why you have to be so careful. That's why your work has to be of such high, high value. And very little would be tolerated. Just dressing sloppily would not be tolerated. Manners, how you write your papers, everything was very, very strict. So that's what I felt working there. And I felt like I wanted to do more transactions, like do more quote-unquote deals. But it was also a matter of luck, which teams you were put into, which would actually do these deals or not. So sometimes I felt like, oh, if only I had more deal experience, I would have stayed a bit longer. But I went through different 
industry sectors that didn't really do a lot of deals. But what they were trying to do was to operationalize companies that they had already invested a lot in. So that's a different kind of skill to pick up, which I did not appreciate at the time. Very, very important. More important than doing deals, in fact, because that's where you already own the baby and you're trying to raise the baby and give it all the, the good things in life. But at that point, I was just not switched on to that kind of operational mindset. I always felt like as a pseudo investment banker in my head, I was like, I was looking to do deals. But I did manage to do a few deals, but also to be exposed to some very interesting situations. In my first year, I was exposed to the creative and media landscape. And Kazana had invested in Pinewood Iskandar Studios Malaysia in Johor. And I learned about the business of movie studios. Was Marco Polo uh, filming then? It was partially, and you can see them walk through the palm oil trees in all the rows. And then you thought like, huh, in ancient Mongolia, this is what they walk through. Obviously, that's true. Okay, cool. But it was a landmark series for us to be, say, Pinewood Iskandar is finally on the map. To learn all these things, very, very interesting. And then I moved on to the leisure and tourism side where we invested in hotels and theme parks. And the business of leisure is actually very, very difficult because the end product is fun. But to make it fun, your operationalized, the operationalization has to be so flawless that the customer experiences nothing but fun. During that whole time, it was very, very eye-opening to see how we would invest and how we would choose to add value to these companies. And yeah, to this day, at least if I look at a few of the sectors that I touched before, at least I understand a little bit about some businesses. That was really fun. I think ultimately at a place like that for a young person, they would give you a very specific task to do and they would expect that of you. And that's what I felt was the push factor for me. You have a feeling already after a certain amount of years where you're like, okay, I'm out. That's when I started texting my old boss again from HSBC, who then moved on to Afin. And Afin was doing very, very interesting things in the market, like looking at possibly merging with Huang, Huang DBS at the time. So I had my conversations on the side and the moment the Afin Huang merger was in the papers, I then tended at Kazana and told my old boss that I'd be able to join. Were you working with Dato Hisham at the time? In Kazana, yes. Actually, he was one of the executive directors who oversaw the Iskandar region, which was one of my portfolio sectors as well. So during that time, there was a lot of investment in Iskandar. There was a lot of different interests going to it, the Japanese, the Chinese. And we were trying to do things that we felt made sense and could also add value to our other parts of our portfolio. Iskandar itself would be instrumental in the real estate part because Kazana owned UEM. And it would be interesting to the leisure side because we had experience running hotels and theme parks. And that's where Logoland and the Desaru hotels would be. So yeah, Hisham was there. Hisham was a drill sergeant. He would be glad to be referred to as that, I think. He has a very militaristic Sun Tzu mindset. He would always drill into us, you must study valuation, you must study valuation, you must focus on this because he's the NYU professor of valuation and corporate finance. You have to understand this. So that's what I learned in my time with Tato Hisham. So you moved to Afinquan and I believe you were involved in that post-merger integration. You were involved in quite a few big deals. There was also the IPO of Servar Dynamic Berha as well. So what were the highlights, hmm. if you were at the time, for you? Yeah, going over to Afin Huang was like a quote-unquote big fish in a small pond. And little did I know I would also then go to Stashway, which is a much smaller pond. But I think in a small pond, you can learn a lot and you can make your skills be very valuable to the organization. So coming from Kazana, where I was in a big pond and there was a lot of talent there, it was very hard to stand out. At Afin straight away, working with my, my former boss, Johan, it was very clear that Afin was a different type of organization. I immediately got access to 
the C-suite to forming and executing a strategy for the organization, which sounds very interesting, sounds very sexy at that time. And when I went over, we were just in the midst of finalizing the, the, the merger. So at that point in time, what was very clear to us was that if we did not have a strategy and if we did not execute well on this strategy, the value of the merger would disappear. There were these mythical creatures called synergies that you would need to capture in the first two, three years. Otherwise, the business would kind of revert back to the normal and you would not have captured these synergies and it would be very hard to justify having done the merger in the first place. So at that point, there was a great sense of urgency and there was a great sense of transformation because Afin, a very GLC kind of organization, was going to merge with Huang, a very entrepreneurial kind of like Chinaman-run company. And together, we would be this boutique investment bank that was scrappy and could win deals and finally make its mark on the league tables. So that was the feeling at that time. And I went in, into it with a lot of energy. I helped my boss at that time, Johan, recruit a team of, of three other people to help to form the strategy office to then work with the consultants at that time to form and then implement the strategy that we had formed. That was very, very interesting and a lot of learnings from that as well. Like what is good strategy? What is not good strategy? And after doing two years of that, when the merger was already nicely sewn up and it didn't feel to me like there was a lot of stuff to learn because that momentum of that initial merger had now been business as usual because we had done what we needed to do or we had kind of come to terms with the things that we could not do. And then it was very BAU. So to me, I was less motivated. I was always looking for that new high. And I then transferred laterally to equity capital markets to, like you said, list different companies, including Server Dynamic, including at the time called MI Equipment, now called MI Technovation, or unless they've changed their name again, I don't know. Both of which, since IPO, have done very well. If I just had bought stock on the first day after it listed, I would have be very, very wealthy, but I didn't. But we are. It is very, very interesting to work on transactions. So like this combination of working part-time as an accountant and then in funds management and then Kazana as a sovereign wealth fund company and then transitioning to corporate strategy. And then finally, I could be an investment banker. I say that I do deals. And it was fun doing deals. Doing the BD, pitching for deals, actually winning them was a real delight. Working with a very small but very tight team to achieve something. To kind of see a company through to listing day was an achievement in itself. And we caught exposure to great entrepreneurs to see how well they position their business for growth. I was actually very happy doing deals like that. I think if Sashvary didn't come knocking, I would have stayed there for another few years. Easy. So what happened? Because I'm sure joining a tiny startup only two years ago at the time was the last thing on your mind. It was. And to be fair, these weren't big deals. They were just big deals for Afin because they would be like, our first mid-cap IPO and things like that, lead role. That's what big mentor for us. But I was very happy. And I remember at that point in time, a few of my friends started to leak away into the digital or startup space. When you go to a family gathering and it's like, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? And like, oh, I'm, I'm working with Shopee and they're posting me in Vietnam or Philippines or whatnot. Like, okay, that's interesting. Like e-commerce, okay, whatever. Then you meet people like, oh, I work for Uber. Someone actually linked in me and said like, do you want to join Uber? And I was like, no, nope, I don't know if this will fly. I don't know what it is, but yeah, not for me. And then you saw people like join my taxi, which obviously later become Grab, and see people join fintech startups like my friend Wilson Bay from Policy Street. 
who went on to found his own company, Policy Street, with two other co-founders. I still had my head in the sand. I was like, no way that these kind of things would be lucrative or like something for the long term or something that I would ever want to be part of because the business of startups at that point, to me, the wrong perception was that it was all about hype because it was like, what, what's so fashionable about going out there, creating a business model and burning cash and hoping that one day you become a monopoly? And then obviously list and, and all that. I just didn't understand like, where's the fundamentals to this? Just was too much into traditional finance. But once I understood that being in a startup and creating value and getting into monopoly means that you are creating value just down the line. And actually with good business discipline, you can actually break, make money. A lot of companies have since made money. The likes of uh, Facebook and Amazon, they now make money. So I, I, I slowly learned that that was possible as well. And I didn't think that it was a career for me because I just didn't see something that I liked. I didn't care about e-commerce. I didn't care about ride hailing. I didn't care about insure tech. And fintech was a buzzword at the time. So it all came down to luck, really. Working in banking, I like wearing suits and I like wearing shirts, tailored shirts. And I was shopping online and lo and behold, there was this company called Custom Tribe which made tailored shirts. I bought those tailored shirts, loved them. And I wrote into the support desk and said, hey, I love your shirts. And the guy responded to me and said, would you want to go out for lunch? Because I think I would learn a lot from a customer and a user like you. What is important to you? So I met Yi Hong, who actually was the founder of Custom Tribe. And he said, what is important to you as a customer? And I said, what's important? Fit. Fit is everything. I don't care if you have 10 SKUs, blue, yellow stripes, whatever. I just want nice white shirts, which are very good fit. And then we talked about everything, like the thickness of the cotton. And I would tell him like the buttons are very tight to go into these holes. Can you give me slimmer buttons? And then he would say, what if I made the hole a bit bigger? And I'm like, yeah, that works too. It was like that. It was that kind of relationship. It was quite fun actually. But then his business didn't do very well. And he shut shop and he went to Singapore to join a venture capital company. And while I was happy doing my pitch books and doing IPOs, he WhatsApp me and say, hey, I just met this really interesting company called Stashway. The founders are really amazing and they want to expand to Malaysia. You're a finance guy. Like, do you think you want to put your hand up for the job? So I remember not answering him because I remember not registering what a Stashaway was and what a FinTech was. So I was just like, yeah, yeah, not really my thing. So I didn't respond. And two days later, he said like, oh, I'm serious. I just sent me your CV. I can just forward it to them. So I was like, okay, just out of respect for my friend. I, I looked it up, Stashaway in Singapore, and I was really wowed by the website. It was very beautifully designed. But there was a logo there by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which I went, hey, this is a startup, but it's regulated. And not only is it regulated by whatever, it's regulated by the MES. And MES has very, very high standards. So I did more research. I was like, oh, it's a robo-advisor. It puts together ETFs to form portfolios for you to invest outside of Singapore or outside of Malaysia. That's really cool. Oh, they have a mobile app as well. Why don't I download it and try? By the time I was already sprucing up my CV, I, was, I sent it to, to Yi Hong. And when I had that first conversation with Michele, the, the co-founder and the CEO, he said to me, oh, your CV came highly recommended by this VC. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, no, no. It's my good friend, Yi Hong, who works for this VC. I don't know them that well. But you see, you know, just like by fate manifesting in the ways that fate manifests, you getting in the door is very important. Obviously, staying in the room is a completely different, different thing. But Yi Hong and that nice opener about being highly recommended or whatever was a really cool way to get in the door. I like to think I've done things since then to stay in the room. But as origin stories come, I thought Lady Luck had a big part to play. And till today, I, me and Yi Hong meet every time I'm in Singapore and we're like, oh, that was just so, so crazy.
And what was it about Stash Away or maybe your conversation with Mikalei that convinced you to jump to Stash Away? Yeah, so I was pretty much sold by the time I spoke to Mikalei because of three main reasons. The, the, the first thing was that I felt that they were very legit. It was not a hope and a dream. They were a legit regulated licensed company in Singapore, which is not easy to be regulated very, very high standards. And then the second thing was when I downloaded the app, I started to use it and I felt like this app is beautifully designed and I, I like using it. And even if I didn't join Sashway, I would use Sashway. So I felt like if I could join Sashway to help them build a business around this great product, I think there would be a lot of promise. The third thing was the people. Because before meeting Michele, I spoke to the head of HR, Siri, and I got the sense that she was really, really warm, really lovely, and that everyone in Sashway would be like that too. And I was not wrong. Everyone in such way is like that. Very, very smart, very, very high EQ and just nice people, which is, you know, sometimes hard to find in a high IQ environment. So I was sold. Like I spoke to the CEO, Michele, the CIO, Freddie, and Nino, the CTO, and all of them had the same vibe. The DNA was consistent. So the people really sold it for me. Was there any like hesitation? Because I listened to an interview that Michele did on Clubhouse and he hmm. said when I was trying to raise capital 2.3 million spoke to 125 investors 124 said this will not work so yeah that hesitation i guess was already behind him because they had already raised series a by the time i signed so of course i did have some doubts but the doubts were very quickly ameliorated because he said at that point in time and my candidacy was almost confirmed he just said like in confidence that, yeah, it's looking good and we are able to race. So shouldn't be worried about that at all. And that just gave me the confidence to join them and to help them launch. So, so ultimately, it just came together. And obviously, since then, we've raised Series B and the Series C and we're doing very well as a company. So I feel like two and a half years ago, it was luck that got me started. But I guess I had a decent checklist as to why I wanted to join Stash Away. But I like to think that there was some good execution in the last two year, two and a half years, along with some luck, of course, markets, a wily beast. But well, I guess we don't have luck because we had coronavirus and terrible <laughs> markets, but the markets recovered and our portfolios did well. So there's an element of our CIO's skill involved as well. And we've done very well. And I like to think that, that Malaysia is punching above its weight in terms of its contribution to the group. So the, the journey continues and long may it be fun. So let's linger a little bit on those early days because you joined in July and I believe they launched in Malaysia in October. So were you very clear when you joined that this was your purpose to bring Stash Away out of Singapore for the first time into a new country? What were you supposed to do? Yeah, so with a, a, a great startup like Stash Away where you had heavy hitters in every single department. So heavy hitters in digital marketing, in product and design. So product and design is what you see in the app and what you see in the website, that's the product. Good people in investments, our CIO, and good compliance people. All I had to do, and they made it very clear to me in the beginning, is to make as much noise as possible. So that meant getting the word out, working with advertisers, working with partners, meeting with high net worth individuals, doing a lot of PR, and recruiting people to help us grow the practice would also be a big part of that. And also keeping the regulators happy with how we were complying with the framework. That whole broad mandate was upon me and it was not difficult to execute because when you have, I guess, all aces, it's very difficult to lose. So I tried to contribute as best I could, try and recruit good people for them to see the same vision try and get them excited. Met with the regulators, made sure that the final hurdle towards that licensing was, was all well and good and made sure we were well set up for our launch. So 
when we did launch, we had a press event and people wrote about us and I was on radio and shot after that TV and papers and all that. I kept remembering just Michele saying to me, make a lot of noise, make a lot of noise. So that's what I'm good at doing now, just <laughs> making a lot of noise because there were a lot of things that were being done before the launch, like actually making sure the product was ready for Malaysia. But Singapore and Malaysia, not that much difference in terms of the wording and the tone. Unlike, say, launching in Thailand and Hong Kong, which we are close to doing, there's only so much localization that can be done. So we did those, made sure we did them well. But when it came to launch, the most important thing to do at that time was make noise. So I saw make noise we did. Were there particular things that you found were very effective? Because you have 5,000 people in on making your wait noise. list. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So again, some of it luck. So I remember that when we launched that Wild Digital was also going on, the tech conference. And my sister-in-law was working with Katja at the time. And she said that, hey, does Michele want to speak? I give him a slot to speak about fintech. Because he was at Zalora and at Zalora, he would be a speaker at Wild Digital. So he came to speak first time on behalf of Stashaway. And after his talk, my sister-in-law introduced me to The Edge. And it wasn't just The Edge, it was the personal wealth section. Uh, this reporter called Nat Tan, she has been following us till today. She writes about us and she's been a supporter till today. So we met her in that conference. And when she wrote about us, she was even nice enough to include our website to say, if you want to join the waitlist, go to this website. And for a small business that's struggling to find the right to survive, a small thing like that would change things. So great digital marketing on top of decent PR before the launch helped us build a really good waiting list. And a lot of it was actually organic as well because Malaysia, very close to Singapore, Malaysians living in Singapore, Malaysians who invested in Singapore would go on Laoya and like, oh, this Stashway, blah, 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 Stashway, you want to join, 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 right? So like, it can be good and bad. So in this case, it was good. And ultimately, we had 5,000 people. And then when we launched, it had a lot of kinetic energy from day one. And then on top of making a lot of noise and having a lot of fun, I guess those were the heady days. In my first year, I just went on so many roadshows and, and things like that. There was one fateful week where I had 15 speaking engagements in the span of 14 days. So in two weeks, I will be speaking at least twice a day. And, and this was before Zoom. So it's not like I can just buy and then go. It would be like, okay, go to this conference and then go to that conference and then go to this company and, and do something for internal and this, that, that and the other. It would feel a little bit rockstar because you would go to this conference and say like, sorry, I can't stay for Q&A because I have to go to another conference. But those early days were very, very busy, very, very fun. The way we would relax would be to meet a lot of our friends and tell them, stash away, stash away, stash away, stash away. So I would show them the app. I would tell them why I joined. I would tell them to put money. Some of them did. Some of them did not. I have names of people who did not invest <laughs> back then. <laughs> but it's amazing. And even at a point on time, your friends will help you. And you really get to see like who your so-called friends are. And the ones who really help you, I would never help me. I, I would never forget. There was even once that we were... We set up our bank account and we just needed people to test out whether our bank account was okay. So I was literally asking people like, can you transfer me a few thousand so I can give it back to you? Just so things would be fine. Of course, we transfer our own money as well, but like you need a relatively large amount of people just so you can read the code from different banks and things like that. Small, small things like that, but crucial, crucial, crucial. Right? So I was <laughs> telling my friend like, yeah, can you transfer? And then some had like no questions asked. <laughs> And like, wow, this girl is a little loose with your money. And then I'm like, are you sure? Where is it going? Will I get it back? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is not the investment part yet. That will come later. Don't worry. This is just me testing out my banking operations. 
So yeah, that was how we set up. And collectively as a group, Singapore and Malaysia now we manage more than uh, 1 billion US dollars. So that's no mean feat in around three and a half years, which I'm very proud of for the group. I'm very proud of for the people who did it from day one. We contribute, of course, a small amount. Whenever you take Malaysian Ringgit and you divide by three and you divide by four, the contribution seems a little bit smaller than how I think about it, but it's, it's okay. I think uh, people recognize our contribution. I imagine with all the fun, there were also challenges. When you just launched Q4 2018, market went down 20%. So how did Stashway yeah, tackle yeah. that? <laughs> It was, it was okay because um, actually in Singapore, they had a bigger pot to manage. So they had their own challenges talking to investors there. But because we were new, we had only had one, two, maybe three months worth of people. The amount of people to manage was not bad and not a lot. And the people who joined at that time in the low, low, low markets would be laughing because they would make so much money. Little did they know that 2020 would be a crazy year, but in every correction and every bear market, there'll be people that make money from it. So that's why I keep telling people that the time and the, where we are in the market cycle doesn't matter as long as you have a long-term horizon. So the challenges were more around getting product market traction. And a big way of getting product market traction, especially when it comes to money, is to earn people's trust. And so I was very, very aggressive on that earning trust side because we were new and our brand did not hold a lot of weight back then. We just had to be very consistent and we had to make a lot of noise in a way so that people would trust us. I always feel like trust is something that you can borrow. You can never steal. You can only borrow and you can give it back. You can give it back. So I remember in the early days that we went on BFM and BFM is like big media outlet and they lend you trust. We went on and we did our show and borrowed some trust. And we thought, hey, actually, hey, BFM is like a really good channel. So let's do some advertising here as well. Like, no brainer. 30s, 40s, professionals, Clang Valley, let's do it. So it was nice to be able to say to them like, hey, we would like to be an advertiser as well. And then from then, first time actually recording a radio ad. We've now done it four times to see ads being created, to see billboards being created uh, that we wrapped LRT stations to look for places where you would want to appear from a PR perspective was, was actually really cool. So running a business is not just about the dollars and cents. A lot of it is about where do you want to be in front of your customers? So that's very marketing 101. And it was very cool for me to experience firsthand because it was very tactile. It was very real. It was like, if I gave you 100,000, 200,000, where would you go and advertise? So because you're the most Malaysian person in the room, you need to go and you need to know something. So that was really, really fun. Was content creation part of the major arm of building trust? Because that's something that you guys do really well. There's an academy. Mm. I think there's like three pillars of content. There's like personal finance, there's stash away, and there's also like investment as well. So was that something that was very clearly a part of your strategy from the start? Yeah, so this all comes down to our head of content at the time and now head of growth marketing, Rachel. So Rachel is this really special talent who has a very good mix of business knowledge, business background, but also things other than business. So she was not like a, an industry veteran where she only had a certain way of doing things. She would always communicate in a very authentic, genuine, straightforward way because that's how she wants Sashway to communicate with her as a user. So she used that skill and branding and writing content is a skill. It's not easy to actually produce a lot of stuff in-house. And a lot of the tone that we use is educational and it is non-reactionary because we don't want to be 
telling people to change their view of the world every time Jerome Powell coughs or Trump tweets. The, 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 or Trump tweets. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So very early on, they set the tone of voice to be very authentic, to speak directly to the customer because their money is in our hands in a way where we would have them focus on the long term and create good habits because people didn't necessarily have good habits from the start. So we needed to inculcate these habits. So through market cycles, through ups and downs, through different changes in the portfolio, the tone would be the same. It would be assuring, it would be long-term, it would be to create good habits. So when I came on board, it was only to work with her to say, what would Malaysian's attitude be towards content like this? And what other media would also be surrounding them so that our content can be relevant? So writing about our retirement and talking about EPF rates and PRS and how that is really not enough to just rely on those two things to have a good retirement. You also need to invest on the side. On top of that was a big part of being who we are as Estashway, having good content creation in-house and also relating that to what's happening in the real world because markets are very, very fragile. And uh, yeah, I had a clubhouse session with her as well and she brought up a lot of those points and I'm very glad she's on our side. <laughs> so like I said, we are very good people in all our positions. So I'm just very glad to be working with amazing people like that who I can learn from and who seek my input when it comes to Malaysia. So it's a great culture actually throughout. And I think for anyone who's learning about Stashway for the first time, some of the buzzwords that pop up immediately is the word robot advisory, as you said, firstly. Mm. And I think a lot of people are possibly even at this point, still not sure what that means. So how would you define it and apply it to Stashway? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So robo-advisor is a term, but we like to call ourselves digital wealth manager. And how you can view it is as simple as having a digital fund manager. So instead of going to invest your money with a unit trust agent who usually charges very, very high fees. All you have to do is download an app and then it will take you 15 minutes to sign up. You can deposit your money. You can monitor your investments. You can know what you're investing in and then you can withdraw all from using the same app. You don't have to fill up any forms or meet someone, go to a branch and do all those inconvenient things. So that's the experience. But what is Stashaway's main value proposition besides being convenient and all that? I think Stashaway is a very easy way to get started to invest because to invest, you really have three options. You either manage it yourself, you give it to someone else, or you combine the two. Some things you manage yourself, some things you give to someone else, someone like an expert, like a traditional fund manager or someone like Stashaway. So if you have never invested, it's very, very daunting. So I think learning about investing through investing on a platform like Stashaway is a really good way to begin Firstly, because we invest your money outside of Malaysia, which is a huge plus. A lot of options out there focus just on investing in Malaysia. And through your EPF and through your other funds, probably already have exposure. So investing outside of Malaysia is a way to learn about different markets. The second thing is that it really fits the part of your portfolio that sets you up for, for long term because there's different platforms and different ways of investing that you can do to make money in the short term. Things like buying stocks, cryptocurrencies, things like that, which you might dabble into as well. But Stashway really fits that long-term and foreign exposure that a lot of Malaysians just don't have access to. So the great thing is that coming back to our original question, like if you haven't heard about Stashway or Robert, what is it? What, what's the use or what's the utility? 
or the advantage of using Stashway is that experienced investors come to us as well, knowing how they want to use Stashway. So once they understand what we do, it's like, oh, okay, you take ETFs and you form portfolios. Okay. And these ETFs of different asset classes. Okay. And it's denominated in US dollars. Okay. So then they look at their current investments. Maybe they have a lot of real estate holdings or they have a lot of stocks that they manage themselves. Then they go, okay, I will use Stashway to complement what I have now. So it's not only for new investors. It's actually a lot of our clients are also experienced and savvy investors. And some of them are also in that high net worth category where they clearly know what they're doing with their money and they clearly have enough wealth. It's just that they have a particular use for Stashway. So that's all very interesting. I don't feel like Stashway is out of place. If you talk to whoever you talk to, it can suit whatever needs you have. So I think all in all, just to sum it up, it's just a very convenient platform to invest your money. There's a lot worse things in the world than that. And the things that you invest through Stashway would be these things called ETFs, which are actually mm. passive. So I wonder, robot advisory sounds more active and you're thinking about where to invest in, whereas there's ETFs, which you don't actually do anything about. How do they work together? Hmm. So the term robo-advisor came from the US because that's where the first robo-advisors were founded. And the word robo-advice comes from the relationship that people would have with their financial advisor. So the financial advisor would tell you or guide you what to invest in. And what the early robo-advisors did was make you fill in some information and then they would then have some sort of logic that would guide you into what portfolios to use. Hence the word robo-advisor. It is not a digital wealth manager or robo-advisor. It's not a active fund manager where they trade high frequency investments on, on the stock exchange or, or really, really create a lot of trading activity. It is, it's actually more about just that advice part. We don't really trade too actively. We actually combine ETFs along with our investment framework. And ETFs are, like you said, predominantly passive, but we can put together ETF portfolios, which are passive for the most part, but do better by changing the asset allocation from time to time. And when we actually change it is when we look at where we are in the economic cycle and we feel that and what we interpret the data as showing us is that we are in a, now in a different part of the economic cycle, your asset allocation should change along with it. So that's what we have adapted those technologies and complemented with technologies that we ourselves have built, the investment framework. And by that, I think we serve our investors better, actually. Because imagine if you just held a static portfolio of ETFs, when the markets do well, you, you do well. And when markets don't do well, you don't do well. So the idea of having a digital wealth manager help you to do using an investment framework is to manage those severe ups and downs better. And that's what we've been able to do over the past three and a half years, and especially over the last year as well. There's actually not a lot you need to do, but when it's the right time to do something, we change your asset allocation for you and protect your portfolio or enhance your portfolio depending on where we are in the economic cycle. And I believe the investment framework you refer to is called the Economic Regime-Based Asset Allocation or ERA, and it's proprietary. So how did that come about? Because I believe you also rely on that in the Q4 2018 when there was a market correction. So you must have had it up to speed, performing what you wanted it to even at the very start. Yeah, we actually launched with ERA enabled from day one. And ERA, or as you mentioned, economic regime-based asset allocation is really the brainchild of our CIO, Freddie Lim. He's had over 20 years of investing experience for major institutions. And the thing that made him want to do this was the 2008 financial crisis where he lost money in his professional investing, but he lost less than his 
peers or his competitors, but he was just still upset that he lost money. There should be a system that protects people from going through severe losses. So that's where ERA came about. ERA takes into account where we are in the economic cycle, risk management, and also things like forex movements to give you a portfolio that is best suited for where we are in the economic cycle. So for example, if we are in a recession, you want more bonds, you want more gold, you want more consumer staples and utilities and, and healthcare equities. And in good times, you want more cyclicals like we are in now with COVID being eradicated. We are in full-on cyclical mode where oil and gas companies, finance, consumer discretionary companies are coming back to life, emerging markets, tech doing very well. So that's what you want out of your portfolio. And that's what ERA is designed to do. It is a systemized way of, of investing. So actually, Freddie doesn't have to rely on his mood swings or a certain light bulb moment. He, he actually has programmed his thinking into a model. So whatever data it takes in, it can actually tell you whether you should stay invested or not. So that's the real value add. And no robo-advisor in the world has something like this or articulated, articulated as well as we do because the, the asset allocation for a lot of robo-advisors are fixed. They are static. And some of them have this fuzzy logic where they say like from time to time, we will change things. If we shake the teacup and the tea leaves fall a certain way and I blow the dandelion, we will change it. So when I read this stuff, their white paper, it doesn't really make that much sense. So I, I still don't understand sometimes how they choose to change their asset allocation. But at least we have something in-house and we articulate it to the point where it gives you value as a user. We are very clever and we have looked into the sea of data and we have determined for you each optimization is done in a way where we tell you the motivation why we are doing it and we tell you what we're selling and we tell you what we're going into. So I think that's very valuable. That's not something that a lot of fintech companies and a lot of robo-advisors have. So in terms of investment decisions, this is not what users need to be concerned about. When they log into the app, they just need to input their data and really just decide on their risk allocation. And you have a risk index of 6.5% to 36%. So how did Stashaway come yeah. up with this risk index? Hmm. So basically, it is low to high. So the way you interpret this risk index is to say there's a 1% chance of losing more than this amount in percentage terms. So 1% chance of losing more than 6.5 or 36% chance of losing more than that. So we have 12 portfolios between 6.5 to 36. And the reason why it is not higher than 36 or it's not lower than 6.5 is that if you go lower than 6.5, you really are not taking a lot of risk. And there's no point for a fund manager to charge any fees to just give you like, oh, give you 1% or give you like 2% or something like that. So that's why it's at around that level, 6.5%. And then as you add on risk, there are marginal decreasing returns. So at a certain point, adding on more risk does not give you positive return. And that's why we stop. And note that this 36% and this 6.5% is the potential downside. So we also want to protect that from being too high. You don't want something that's like, oh, this could go down 50% and like say it with a straight face and be okay with it. Like you don't ever want that portfolio to be yours. So we stop at a certain risk reward ratio and we offer quite a lot in between as well. There's 12 portfolios to choose from. So all people really need to ask themselves are a few basic questions. Like how long do I need to invest for? What am I investing for? They also can ask themselves, what risk appetite am I comfortable with? And with that, they can choose a portfolio for themselves or they can just use our goal-based investing feature for us to actually recommend and guide you to actually picking a portfolio. 
So it's all very intuitive. It's all very simple. And I just encourage people to, to use the app because you don't get charged fees until you deposit money. So you can just fiddle with it, read some of the articles, play with the goal-based investing feature and see if it's for you. And if you've really done all your research, then you can just put it in however much you need. So I'm intrigued by something you said earlier, which is the 1% chance of your portfolio dropping. How do you hmm. know that it would just be 1%? Because I mean, that you get stock markets falling like in 2008, 50% in the tech bubble again, 20%. So how can you guarantee almost that 1%? Ah, so I think I need to clarify. So it's a 1% chance of losing more than the stated amount. So what we do with this metric called value at risk is to look at the amount of times that portfolio could fall that particular amount. If it does not very often fall more than 36%, then in the distribution of possibilities, it's a very slim event of actually happening. So it's a 1% chance of losing more than that amount. So it's not to say that markets can't go down 1%, 5%, 10% in a day. It's to say that it's very unlikely that your portfolio will fall more than 36% or more than 6.5%. So that is how it's set up because it's a probability model. And if you look back in time, only big occurrences like 08 or 2020 that really cause big swings in a portfolio like this. When we look at that, we are assured that these portfolios are set up for tough times. And even in the tough times, they survive and then they recover, which is exactly what it did last year. So that's how it's labeled, which is a different way, right? So why talk about risk? Why do you want to talk about the percentage of you potentially losing this amount of money? It's confusing and you talk about risk, it's about downside. We believe that if you don't talk about risk, then you won't be able to make the investment decision. So that's why we've labeled all our portfolios according to this risk index from 6.5 all the way to 36. And it's something people have to honestly ask themselves. Am I okay losing 36% potentially? Even if it's a 1% chance of losing it, you have to ask yourself, in a financial crisis, I could lose 36%. Am I okay with that? If not, that's fine. Going, You can much easily stomach something like 15%. Okay, so then you use portfolio in between, something more balanced. A lot of people say, I want to make the most amount of money humanly possible yesterday. But like that's just not how investing works. So we have to be responsible about marketing. And we obviously cannot and don't want to market returns because it's all theoretical. And why tell you about yesterday's returns? Because that's not that relevant to you. So what is constant is risk. So we tell you about risk. So during my research, one of the criticisms or questions that I found people had was just in the way that Stashaway categorizes risk. So they talk about how the highest is 36% and the most is 39% to US equity. And it seems to suggest as though greater exposure to US equity equals higher risk. So lower exposure means lower risk. Because if you look at the lowest risk allocation, like exposure to US markets only in government and corporate bonds, you don't have US equity. So how would you mm -hmm. explain to them? I would explain that risk is constant and it doesn't matter where you actually get exposed to this risk. Yes, if we want to introduce risk to the portfolio, we do look at the US because that market and those particular sectors that we've cho chosen are more volatile. So they have, the, have better potential gains and also potential losses. Another reason why the US is such a small portion in the highest risk portfolio is because we see risk to the US dollar. So because of that, we purposely reduce the exposure to US dollar to the US 
to use equities across the board. And that's why we have to find risk elsewhere, which is why in the higher risk portfolios, there's also this other ETF labeled KWEV, which is the Chinese ETF. Chinese ETFs, uh, especially the ones which are exposed to tech, plenty risky as well. It's just that I think the way people look at portfolios can be a bit superficial because they work on what they know. And what they know is that, okay, the US market is the most watched benchmark in the world. So maybe if there's less risk there or more risk there, it informs us something about the portfolio. But truthfully, at the end of the day, it's all just about risk. And whatever is in that portfolio plays, plays a role, either from a risk standpoint or a diversification standpoint, or to give you exposure to a particular sector, or to even protect the portfolio. One criticism we do get is that why in my most risky portfolio, there's gold, there's a protective asset. So the reason for that is that, like I said before, the US dollar is something that we foresee depreciating because we are printing, the US is printing uh, a lot of US dollars relative to other currencies, so it could depreciate. And what is a counter to that as another so-called neutral currency? It's gold. And from a risk-reward standpoint, if let's say I invested all your money into the S&P 500 and I give you 10%, okay, let's just say I give you 10%. And then I invest your money into Stashaway and I also give you 10%. From a risk-reward standpoint, Stashaway is better because it achieved the same amount of returns at much less risk because they had gold in it, they had different diversification in it. So ultimately, the quality of your returns is judged based on risk. And you can't just say, I could have made more money doing something else because that's, first of all, the 2020 hindsight. And secondly, that is not commensurate with the amount of risk that has been taken if you theoretically invested your money elsewhere. So what we're after at the end of the day is risk reward. We're not just after, oh, potential rewards that if we go all in, we put it all on black. We put it all on red and we get the return. And if you get the return, you look like a hero. If you don't get the return, Stash Away is a terrible investment platform because it gives you potential gains, potential losses, sorry. So that's why we are very, very careful with our investments. And that's why the composition of assets is the way it is. But it's fine. It's conversations like this. It is questions like that, criticisms like that, that really make people realize that investing is actually more complex than they might think. It's not just about, oh, I invested in this particular ETF. It looked amazing. If you did that and you want to get rich yesterday, you would have just invested in Bitcoin in 2018, Tesla in 2019, rubber gloves in 2020, Bitcoin again, GameStop, all the things that you would have jumped into the very hot stuff at that time and would have no idea why you're not making money. So investing is not gambling. And that's why we have managed to risk as such. And that's why we have portfolios like that with assets like that. I think we're doing a pretty decent job. Since inception, our returns range from 3.5% to 17% per annum. So imagine being invested in the most risky portfolio and getting 17% for multiple years. And, and that's what long-term investing looks like. You invest for many years and you get to realize good returns. So in different years, Different portfolios would have different performances. By the end of the day, we'll give you consistently good ones. We, we have shown that we can and we have weathered many a storm. So we feel like we're, the investment strategy, the investment philosophy is, is definitely on the right track. Because you've already said the kind of people you have on the platform range from quote-unquote unsophisticated investors to those who really know how to invest. And one of the things people will say is, can I determine where all my investment is going? And you have said no. Do you think that's likely to change? I think investing can be risky. So I think for people who are very, very sophisticated with their money, 
they have much more skill and options on their hand. And what we are designing for here is that balance. Will Stash Away work for you in your investment portfolio or not? If it doesn't, that's fine because there are people who choose to trade themselves. I have friends who trade options, trade in Bitcoin, and they do a very good job, but they're glued to the screen and they're trading their own money. So they live and die by their own decision. And they have told me from time to time, it's just like, this may be something that I can do in terms of making my own money, but it may not be something I want to do because I need to spend a lot of time on the screen doing my thing. So as long as it's a set and forget kind of thing, Stash Way works for me in their words. And this comes from sophisticated investors. So for them to choose what they want to do, they can use other platforms. They can use other platforms to choose what they want to invest. But where we come in is that we already have portfolios for you to use to make a certain amount of money, taking a certain amount of risk. And we have Stash Away Simple, which lets you manage your spare cash or your safety net or your idle cash. So we feel like we have done a decent job putting out portfolios on a platform that works for most people. If you want choice, if you truly want choice, then you have to live and die by your choices. But the thing is, if, if StashAway is the intermediary and you chose using StashAway and you lose money, then you're like, oh, StashAway should have known better, so on and so forth. If you want to make your own choice, you can do it outside of StashAway. You can use a broker to express your own investment philosophy, whether you want to trade, whether you want to buy different ETFs, whether you want to get exposure to, to different markets. So let us do a good job for you. And if you think you can do a better job, by all means, try investing on your own and see where Stashway fits your investing philosophy because you might still need it to complement your style. Maybe your style is, I'm very short-term. I do a lot of tr trading. So part of my investment portfolio, I want exposed to long-term investing and in a multi-asset portfolio like Stashway. There's all kinds of degrees of how you can utilize Stashway, right? It is a tool at the end of the day and there's no one silver bullet that will free you from poverty, right? It's financial freedom and achieve through one platform. In your life, you probably need three, four, five financial platforms to reach all your needs. So pick and choose where you use Stashaway and ultimately you'll be fine. So last year, Stashaway produced a new offering, which is the Stashaway Simple. Can you share a bit about mm -hmm. what that is? Yeah. So when we launched, we were offering those ETF portfolios so people could invest globally. But then we also felt like something more fundamental is for us to manage people's cash. And by cash, I mean the pile of money that they have that they don't want to put at risk, not the same way as you wanted to invest. So we used a tried and tested financial product called the Money Market Fund, and we branded it as Dashaway Simple because we wanted you to invest your spare cash in a very, very basic and quote-unquote simple way. We didn't want you to go to a bank and say, hi, I want a high yield savings account, only for them to say, oh, you have to put in a minimum fresh funds of 30,000. You have to make six transactions using this account every month. You have to then buy this in insurance plan. You have to then take out this credit card. It's basically a way for banks to cross-sell you a product and so many products and products that you might not need and so many terms and conditions. So we didn't want that. So we wanted a way for people to get FD-like rates, but without the lockups. So that's where Stash Way Simple comes in. Money market funds are not new. They are a massive asset class in Malaysia. They are around 20% of assets under management in the unit trust industry in Malaysia. It's just that normally it's marketed to corporates for corporates to manage the spare cash on their balance sheet. It's not really marketed to individuals, but individuals can buy anytime. It's just that there's a real difference between 
you being marketed something and choosing it versus following what the banks want you to do. So we took something as plain vanilla as a money market fund and we are popularizing it. So we still get questions like, how is this so good? I can get RFD returns, but it's not locked up. Is it PIDM insured? What is a money market fund? So we get a lot of basic questions from this and we're just glad we can put people onto a good thing because it's something that's so fundamental and it's just better than FDs because why lock your money up and risk not getting any return if you break it early? Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned the PIDM protection, which Stashway Simple doesn't have and it does seem to suggest that there's greater risk than putting it into FD. So is there a reason why Stashway doesn't have it? There's a reason because no investments are PIDM insured. So even things like ASB are not PIDM insured. It's just that people make the connection because they know that their FDs are PIDM insured. So then they ask, is statutory simple PIDM insured? And if you look at the reason for PIDM, it's really to protect the financial system. The byproduct is that it's protecting you because if there was no insurance and there was a crisis, we would all run to the bank and there would be no more money in the bank and there would be a lack of liquidity and the banking system would have a lot of credibility. So that's what the PIDM insurance is there to do. It's meant to serve two masters, the financial system and you. But when does it really often serve you? Like how since the Asian financial crisis, there has not been any bank failures in Malaysia. So why protect yourself against a storm that will not come? And, and, and the money market fund that's investing your money is not investing their, it's not putting their money in small banks. It's actually putting your money in very, very large established banks. So if you want to argue both ways, I could say that you putting all your money into an FD in one bank, you are positing could go down. I could say that me investing for you and putting it in different banks. And if one of them goes down, there's many that remain you'll be safer spreading your bets around. So both are academic points because a run on the bank will not happen. An Asian financial crisis will not happen. So really PIDM insurance is an insurance that you are very likely to not use. What you should be asking yourself is, what is the underlying investment of a money market fund? So a money market fund is invested in FDs. So it's a fund of FDs. So why so worried? It's just that naturally people fear what is new to them. And if you just dig a little deeper, there's actually nothing dodgy inside. It's just a fund of FDs. It could not be more boring than that. If you talk to any CFO in Malaysia, small and large companies, they're just like, yeah, we know what this is. It's just that agents have not spent a lot of time educating the market about this. So in the event that Stashaway, say, goes bankrupt, then what are the guarantees for your customers? So that's a valid question. So any financial institution could go down and what risk do you take putting your money with a financial institution? So the first thing is that we are licensed by the Securities Commission. So we are monitored, we are regulated, we operate a very high operational and and, uh, compliance level, undergo many types of audits many times a year. If there was any signs of impropriety, the regulator would, would catch it. And if let's say that aside, there was a business risk that we go under for whatever reason, we stop being able to raise funds and we run out of internal generated cash flow and we cannot sustain ourselves. We would wind up and we will return your investments to you at the market value. So you don't have to stand in line like a creditor because that's not how we are set up. We are set up using a system of trustees. So we have our balance sheet, which is separate to your investments are actually on the trustees' care and so-called custody. So if we fail as a business, we would then liquidate all your money at that market, at that market rate. Uh, say we had one, more than 1 billion. So we, we would need a few days to sell that. 
bring that back to Malaysia and then attribute it back to you. It's not like being an investor in a bond and the corporate, the company cannot pay you. And therefore you need to take a haircut, take 70% or 60% of the principal that you put down. So you're not taking quote unquote counterparty risk. And we also go so far as to only buy ETFs that do not use derivatives. We only have ETFs that actually hold the underlying asset. So if even the issuer of the ETFs, which is also unlikely to happen, goes down, you actually have, have ownership of those underlying assets. So those big ETF issuers like BlackRock and State Street and all that, if they go down, you would still not take counterparty risk. So you are protected at many, many, many layers. So let me just give you the TLDR. So firstly, we are regulated. Secondly, your money is held by trustees. And so you get back your investment if the company goes down. And thirdly, even the ETFs have ownership of the underlying shares and bonds and, and gold. So you don't have to worry about ETF, the ETF issuers going down as well. So is it a possibility? Yes. Is it a high possibility? No. We also just raised money last year in August because we survived tough times. We saw Because we survived COVID, the investors saw that we were resilient and actually it was a relatively easy fundraise because we were growing, we we're doing very well, and we needed money to expand to new countries rather than just protect our position. So from a company's perspective, from an investment perspective, it's all very safe. Before jumping into the investment, one final point. When people look at statutory simple, the thing that always jumps out is projected rate of 2.4%. So hmm. how do you get that number and what kind of rate is statutory taking itself? Hmm. So the rate that we get for statutory simple comes from the fund manager. So we ask the fund manager, one year from now, what is the rate likely to be? Then they give us a rate. And then because we are working with the fund manager as a corporate customer, representing many, many, many retail customers, they also give us a rebate. It's the same as buying in bulk. Like if you want to buy, you get a discount. So they give us a rebate, which we completely pass on to customers to round it up to 2.4 as well. So that's why we can represent that rate is because every month we talk to the fund managers of this money market fund and they give us a projection of where the market's going to be in 12 months. And the reason why they can give us a good forecast is again, because it is a fund of FDs. So they can see how it's layered. They can see what's the weighted average maturity and the weighted average rate. So they can give us a very good projection. If you ask me to give you a projection on the 36% risk in the portfolio, that's impossible because I don't know what individual ETFs will be doing. But for Stash Away Simple, we wanted to represent a rate that is forward-looking so people can make an informed decision about where best to put their money. Because at the end of the day, it is still an investment, but it's an investment into many, many FDs. So we feel pretty good about the rate. And in Singapore, the rate has had to change because Singapore monetary policy is not the same as Malaysia. When they drop rates, the rates may drop as well. So with Malaysia, so far the rates have not dropped and we were not forced to drop it yet. So in Singapore, we've, had, we've dropped the rate twice and we're still doing just fine because the FDs there are also at rates that are a little bit lower than what we are giving up on such a way simple there. So ultimately, we feel that for your spare cash, it's a pretty good place to be because there's very little risk to it at all. And the return that we project is also net of fees already. So don't worry about us chipping away at, at the fees and all that. What you see is what you get. People always compare Stashaway with Wahid and Maitio. So how would hmm. you distinguish Stashaway from these other guys? 
as an investor, as a buyer, you can judge different platforms by comparing themselves to each other. And fees is just the first part. But then you have other things like the investments, returns, and the service level. So I think we are different because fundamentally we have ERA. And that differentiates us from others because they offer static portfolios that don't change. And for us, we, we think we can do it better. And actually, we have benchmarked the performance and the returns. And we are ahead by a very wide margin. So we outperform the investments by a long margin. So other non-financial, non-investment motivations could be things like how is the app designed? Do they have good content? Do they put out good uh, articles, you know, good educational tools? And we do that through Academy inside the app. I would also argue, but this is subjective, that our app is more seamless and more intuitive. But that's, again, that's subjective. Another thing I would say is that compared to Wahid, our investments are more global because Wahid is mostly local. So I actually think that that global allocation is important. And then when we look at Meteo, when we look at the ETF selection, when we put like to like next to each other, say, I'll take your emerging markets and I'll put it next to my ETF, which also is investing into emerging markets. Our ETF selection is just better. If you just do the homework and you drill down into their universe and our universe, we pick better ETFs, not just from a performance standpoint, but from a fees standpoint, from the track record, the consistent returns. So I have every confidence that I'm riding the right horse, but I guess it's really up to you. One of the things I notice people always ask you is, are you in crypto? And you have said no, because you haven't found anything, any ETFs that are good for crypto. Do you think that's likely to change? Because there is a new Bitcoin ETF that was just found in the US by Scaramucci. So it seems as though more and more of these ETFs are popping up. Yeah, so I think cryptos is a very interesting space. And it is something that we do believe from a diversification standpoint, people should have exposure to. But I do think that for us to actually get exposure to it should be a more meaningful percentage of our portfolio. And now, even if we were to include it, it would only be like something like 1% of our portfolio. So it's not that meaningful. And the ETFs, while they were just launched, it doesn't mean that they will last. ETFs have come and gone. And also the ETFs that track Bitcoin now are not doing a very good job because they are not tracking the price of ETFs. The ETFs are not tracking the price of Bitcoin accurately. For example, the grayscale one offers it at a 30% discount to the actual spot price of ETFs. So my question to users is, if you want ETF, why don't you get it yourself and just manage it in a way where don't get too greedy, don't get too fearful have a calm head. And for us to actually include crypto ETFs into our platform, a few things need to happen. Firstly, the asset class needs to be more mature where we can actually backtest it through different economic regimes so that it could also be used in conjunction with ERA. If you just include it from diversification point of view for fun, then that's no real value add for us. So we probably won't include it. And then another thing is that the ETF should really track the price of whatever coin it's trying to track, be it Bitcoin or Ethereum, much better than it is now. And those ETFs need to have much significant more size and the fees should be very low for us to actually go into it. So I wouldn't hold my breath, but it doesn't mean you should hold your breath. You can actually go out there, get some coins for yourself, cryptos for yourself and, and, and see how it goes. Because I do think from a diversification point of view, it's interesting. At least 1% of your investment portfolio, 5% of your investment portfolio into crypto if you have the stomach for it, is my advice. So we talked about raising funds earlier. I love to drill down a bit. So Series B, 11.8 million raised in July 2019, led by 8 Rose Venture. What was the purpose behind Series B? Because now you have Series C rate, which is 60 million, hmm. July 2020. Hmm. So very fast 
Yeah, yeah. So Series B was actually done because we knew we wanted to expand internationally. At that time, we may not have known that we would have gone into three countries, but we also wanted to invest in Singapore, where we have a very commanding position, and in Malaysia, where we were just getting started. Actually, with Series C, it was just so it just so happened that the timing of us growing very quickly invited a lot of attention from the VCs, and we made the decision. Rather, the the co-founding team made the decision that taking money would actually help us accelerate our growth. So it was not that we used up all the money from Series A and B. It was more about we can actually achieve more with the funds that we raised. So instead of just exploring new markets, we would actually make commitments, get the license, get the people on the ground, set themselves up in the way that Malaysia was set up, so that ultimately they could be engines of growth themselves. So that's what the money is for. I think there's also cycles, like when it comes to the VC world, like certain times money would be very hard to get. Sometimes money would be easier to get. And I think the co-founding team felt that we're in a good place. We are receiving a lot of attention. Let's let's just raise money. So yeah, it's all very I want to say business as usual, but it's more like it's just very clear-headed decision making rather than like. Oh, we want to move into something crazy. We want to do something really, really different. It's all just about gradual expansion and also getting depth in different countries. To what extent would your investors have a say over the way that Stashway runs? Because you have quite a few different VCs. Like Series C was led by SquarePad, which is a different VC. So it seems like quite a lot of interest are at play here. Yeah. So SquarePad, which is Australia's largest VC also invested in us, and so did Eight Roads, Fidelity's a VC, and also along with Series C, uh, Burda Principal Investments, which is a German conglomerate. You know, they are VCR. So I think they all rally around the the goal of the co-founders, which is to grow a digital wealth advisory company at scale. And the numbers show that, and they've been tracking our progress for a long time. And when these numbers keep getting better and better, they gain confidence. Ultimately, as financial investors, as opposed to a strategic investor, their goal is to make money. Their goal is to let the co-founders do what they feel is best, controlled by a very disciplined board, of course, but to let the co-founders lead the charge. And by doing that in a way that makes sense to them, basically, the co-founders have been in the driver's seat, so to speak. So because of that, the direction has always been very clear. We've never deviated from our goal of empowering people to build wealth for the long term. There's not been any side projects that didn't make sense or vocal board members or anything, nothing of the sort. They're also very mature VCs. So they have been through many, many companies and they've seen different things in different countries. They've gone through crises. So there's a very mature board. They want to set us up for success where it enables them to make a, a huge return, something like 10x of their investments. Otherwise, wouldn't justify the investment. So I think they're giving us a very good chance of doing that. And as someone who has worked here for about two and a half years, the direction has always been the same. So I, I, have, I have faith that it will continue. It sounds as though, you know, given everything you're saying, that you have a very positive outlook in terms of the global market. Will that be a fair assessment to make? Definitely now in March of 2021 versus last year, I think investing is never easy, but you should not let timing be an issue because as long as you take the long view and as long as you dollar cost average, you'll be fine. So a lot of the risk factors that were there last year are not here. And even if there are risk factors, there are less. 
So what I mean by that is there's no Trump anymore for that global instability. There's no more COVID for that health-led economic crisis. So the only thing that's putting markets at risk now is the, the speed at which we come out of the COVID lockdown and the economies reopen. And also for the financial markets to readjust to normal growth again, because the US Treasury has done a lot to prop up markets in bad times. And, and it's proven to be very effective. So it needs at some point to actually be in control of the current situation. So it gives the market a very good chance of doing well and recovering. What do you think the rich know that the poor should know? I think what the rich know, and therefore it's something that they see, is that they have more options to invest their money. And more money is being thrown at them and given to them for them to use because they are such good customers in the eyes of the banks that they get faster accelerants to reaching wealth. So for example, if you're a wealthy individual and you make a million a year, you pay a certain amount of income tax and you follow the same schedule as someone else. You, you follow the same schedule as someone else. But then the thing that sets you apart is investing. So rich people invest in a way where they actually get very little tax in terms of capital gains because in Malaysia, there's no capital gains. So poor people really need to think about getting into a mode where they can actually invest. Whereas rich people actually get a lot of options to invest and actually see more options to invest and actually get given more money to invest. And because of that, they race ahead and it's very hard to catch up. But it's not too late to start. It's just how do you really get ahead? Well, thank you so much, Mikein, for your time. So these are the final questions I always ask all of my interviewees. The first one is, do you feel like you have found your why? I hope so. My why seems to change. I think that is something that is perfectly natural. Back then, my why was do it for passion, whereas now I do things for enjoyment and to be true to myself and to be in the moment. So I'm driven by that ability to be who I am and do what I'm good at in the company that I am at now. I think that fuels me and your why can change. So back then, I wasn't married. Now I am. And if I have a family that will change in the future, the why will change as well. As well. So be flexible, be adaptable. And to me, my why is I really get to be myself. I really get to exercise a skill that I enjoy and be in a relatively good position where I can affect change. What kind of legacy would you want to be, leave behind? I honestly don't know. But what I do know is that since I've started working and getting involved in business, I've always wanted to be in a position of leadership. I think it's because whenever I look at my situation, there are more and more things that I want to affect. And you can only affect them in positions of leadership. I like to think that I get to be a part of businesses and platforms and opportunities that mean something to people and myself. And when I am no longer there, then they will speak of me kindly. I think that's all I really want. That day I was hosting some friends at, at our office, which we just moved into. And I said that it's very likely that Stash will be in this location and in this office beyond me. I will move on because even in life, everyone else moves on. And then I was talking to my wife and I said, like, even with Batman, there's new Batman. And the new Batman will not old ask the old Batman what, what he did with the role or whatever. So there will always be a new Batman. There will always be a new leader. And I just want to be spoken well of like, oh, okay, the George Clooney Batman was pretty good. The Christian Bale Batman was pretty good. And that, that's all I want because by then I would have been gone and, and on to do different things or not around. So it's fine. So as long as I leave behind a platform and a position and then a business in in a decent shape, that's all I want as my legacy. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think each person will have a different quality. 
I think my qualities are to to have perseverance, to have resourcefulness, and to be fun to work with. I think those those things are what keeps me going. And time and time again, I rely on these things to push through different challenges, different issues that come up, problem solving. But at every time, if I ask myself, am I having fun? Am I liking what I do? That is really, really important to me. So as long as you are, you can persevere, you can be resourceful and you can have fun. I don't think you need a lot else. And how can people follow you, find out what you're doing, learn more about Stash Away, sign up? So pick your poison. I like to be on, on as many platforms as possible. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Clubhouse. Just type in my name, Wong Wai Ken, and you'll find me. I also do Stash Away's Academy events almost every week. So on Wednesdays, if you want to hear me talk about specifically money, you can follow me as well. But if you want to sign up to Stash Away and get a promo for your listeners, you can go to stashaway.my forward slash Yken, that's W-A-I-K-E-N, and then you can actually get six months no management fees. And that was the end of episode 42. The share notes and transcript can be found at sodismywhy.com forward slash 42, alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter, featuring all kinds of other inspiring and interesting things that I've found over the course of this week. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting one of the world's most well-known English barristers, Turn Vicker, on his faith journey from writing an essay disputing the existence of God in school to heading one of the world's most well-known Anglican churches and evangelical course that seeks to explore the meaning of life. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.